Amen. Good morning. It's great to see all of you. It's good to see those of you in person. Thank you for all of those, those of you who are joining us on live stream. I'm glad you were with us. I'm in a six-week series right now called Wide Awake. We're kind of just walking through aspects of the new vision we've launched in this church. Which the, first, the first statement of our vision is the Sycamore View Church exists to awaken people to the greatness of Jesus. So we're spending a few weeks talking about what it means to be awake and to come awake Uh, to come alive in God. And part of being awake or staying alert is being fully aware of where the enemy is working in our lives, trying to pull us down, trying to distract us. And part of staying alert throughout the Bible and today is being aware of where the enemy is. And a huge part of staying awake and being awake and being alert is always looking for God. Where is God? What is God doing? Where is God working in my life? We launched eight core values back in May. You can find these on our website under the About link. Look at that and you can see our vision, our mission, eight core values. And we've spent time in these this month, in the month of September, you're going to hear us talk a lot about our core value of discipleship, which is um, that, that we boldly raise up discipleship as the mission of the church. This morning, I want to talk about two specific core values, and one of them is that we are passionate about connecting people to God, and also that we are honored to carry the ministry of reconciliation. There are two places in the Bible I want to walk us through this morning. One is in Matthew chapter 26. The other is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And what I want to talk about today is what it means to be bridge builders, because Jesus is asking his church, Jesus is calling his church to be about building bridges and cultivating bridges, not tearing bridges down, but building them, strengthening them, cultivating them. That's what the church is meant to do. So I want to talk about it today. And to do that, I want to talk about the ultimate bridge builder, which is Jesus. Jesus isn't going to ask his church to do anything that Jesus isn't willing to do. So in Matthew chapter 26, here's uh, three verses I want to read, and it's part of a larger story, but this is it. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them, and this is the apostles. This is right after Jesus ate the final Passover meal with them. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took with him uh, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be grieved and agitated. And then Jesus said to them, I'm deeply grieved even to death. Remain here and stay awake with me. When Jesus tells him to stay awake in Matthew 26, three different times he tells his disciples, he tells his apostles to stay awake. And this is more than just don't fall asleep. This is be spiritually alert because Jesus is there to have a connection with God. And Jesus wanted his apostles to have a connection with God too. Like stay awake, be spiritually alert for this. And this is a place Jesus went to quite a bit to pray. This is Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane, which is on the Mount of Olives. This is a place Jesus went to quite a bit. If you've ever been to the Holy Lands and you've been on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's this panoramic view that you get of all Jerusalem in front of you. And here Jesus is in this moment, in this time of prayer, feeling agitated, saddened. He is grieved, looking out over Jerusalem, knowing within 9 to 12 hours he's going to be hanging on a cross. And he knew what was in front of him. So this wasn't just anywhere Jesus went to pray. This was, the, this was Gethsemane, and Gethsemane was on the Mount of Olives. So there are a lot of olive trees. When I was in this spot just uh, almost two years ago, there's one olive tree that is 2,500 years old. 
And I'm thankful that they didn't put up a plaque and say, this is the place Jesus sat and prayed. Because they could have done that. And we all would have believed it and taken pictures with it. Like, this is where Jesus was. But if it's 2,500 years old, there's a good chance Jesus was somewhere close to where that olive tree is. And people used olive oil that came from olive trees for a lot of different things. They used olive oil for cooking. They used olive oil to light candles. They used olive oil for uh, soap. They used olive oil for uh, sometimes for medicine. So this was a precious thing. I mean, almost everybody had olive oil. And it wasn't as easy as you walking up to an olive tree and then you walk away from the olive tree with the olive oil. It wasn't that easy. So what, what they would do is they would take olives and then they had olive presses, which would look something like this, which was a large stone that had a round stone on top, which you could roll. And some people would have ropes connected to it, and they could pull that. Other people would use donkeys or something. So you would put the olives there, and then you would have one stone that would roll over the olives, pressing them, and the olive oil would flow into jars, and then they could take it into the city and the surrounding areas, and they could sell them. But there was no oil if there wasn't pressing. If something wasn't crushed, if something wasn't pressed, the whole idea of anointing that you find throughout the Bible, anointed by God, God anointing kings, the Holy Spirit uh, being anointed by the Holy Spirit, anointing doesn't happen unless something, or in our case, unless someone was pressed. And Jesus, I, I, I wonder if when he was praying on the Mount of Olives, when he was praying in the garden, if, if there was an olive press somewhere nearby where Jesus knew what happens to these olives is about to happen to me. I'm going to be pressed so that anointing can flow. I'm going to be pressed so that people can have access to God. This was a moment when Jesus was becoming a bridge builder, a reconciler. Where because of the sacrifice of Jesus, people, God's going to have easier access to people. And now people are going to have access to God. Uh, I'm fascinated by bridges sometimes. Uh, and let me, let me just mention a couple that have really blown me away in my lifetime. Years ago, one of the first road trips I took as a family is we traveled out west and we went to the Royal Gorge. At one point, the Royal Gorge was the tallest bridge, the highest bridge in the world. The last couple of decades, there are other bridges throughout the world that are now higher than the Royal Gorge. It's the highest bridge in the United States, about 1,000 feet. Uh, uh, huge. Um, the Royal Gorge is, I mean, usually you go there just for sightseeing. You can drive a car across. You can walk across. For a few hundred dollars, you can bungee jump off this thing, which sounds really good, right? And, and, and I've thought about this, Kip, I've thought about this. After, when we're on the other side of, uh, of COVID, the, the staff, we're going to go to the Royal Gorge and we're going to have a bungee jump experience. Kathy McCoy is going to be the first one to go. We're going to hook up a camera to Kathy's forehead and just tape this whole experience. It's going to be great, Kathy. We're going to love it. There's another bridge my family and I went to last year. It's the Sky Bridge. It's part of the Grand Canyon that they've just built us over the last decade or so. Kathy, you've been here too, where the bottom is a glass bottom. So you walk out on this bridge and you can look down thousands of feet into the Grand Canyon, which is a fun bridge, right? And you, you may be thinking right now, and you may be watching right now, if this is what Josh means by being a bridge builder, we should have tuned in to T.D. Jakes or Joel Osteen today. Not, not this. 
But there are two other, other bridges that for those of us in Memphis right now, we're much more familiar with. There's an I-55 bridge and there's an I-40 bridge that connect Tennessee to Arkansas. Now, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, I was, uh, we had a friend here in this church, Lee Brown. He had been homeless in Memphis for 20 years. And around 11 or 12 years ago, Lee Brown had a special connection with this church, became a vibrant member in this church. And occasionally when I would travel to speak somewhere close by, whether it was Jackson, Tennessee or in Jonesboro, Arkansas, I would call up Lee on a Wednesday afternoon or a Sunday afternoon and I would say, hey man, I'm traveling to speak somewhere. I'm taking you with me. So this one Wednesday I called up Lee. I said, hey man, you're going with me. Uh, We're going to Jonesboro, Arkansas. And Jim Coleman, who passed away a few years ago, one of my closest friends was an elder in this church, Jim was with us. And I picked Lee up and Lee said, hey, Pastor Josh, I just have one request. And I said, what is it, man? He said, I know we're going to Jonesboro, Arkansas, but I'm, I'm afraid of bridges, so I need you to get me there uh, in a way that we don't go over a bridge. <laughs> and, I was, and I was like, Lee, I, I, I hate to bust the bubble to you, man, but there's no way we can get to Jonesboro without going over a bridge. And Jim Coleman knew Lee was scared of snakes. So what Jim, Jim Coleman said was, hey, Lee, you know, if you, if, if you fall into the Mississippi, snakes are all in the Mississippi. So Jim Coleman made snake noises the whole way across the bridge <laughs> with Lee. It was, uh, I'll, I'll never forget, I'll never forget this. There's the I-55 bridge. It was built in the late 40s to help people get from Tennessee over to Arkansas. It's actually three bridges that looks like one. And it has many different names because if there is a road in Memphis that goes over 10 miles, it has to have multiple names, right? A first name, middle name, last name. That's just how we do it. Some people know it as the Memphis-Arkansas Bridge or the Memphis-Arkansas Memorial Bridge or I-55 Bridge or some people just call it the Old Bridge. In the early 70s, they built a new bridge. And some people refer to it as the New Bridge or the M Bridge or the uh, Hernando de Soto Bridge. And, and this is the one most people see in pictures of Memphis or it's lit up at night. If you're in a plane and you're flying over Memphis, you can, you can see this bridge. Sometimes we go to Mud Island and people take pictures or family pictures with this bridge in the background. It's a beautiful bridge. And there are these two bridges that connect Tennessee to Arkansas, around 100,000 vehicles every single day go over these two bridges. Now, the structure of the bridges are gorgeous, magnificent. And usually we focus on the structure of bridges without thinking about how the bridges are anchored. If I were to tell you, or a report came out that said, this I-40 bridge, the M bridge, we think it's okay. We're not really sure. Now, we know it's anchored really well into the Tennessee side, but we're not really sure about the Arkansas side. And people came up after early service, and they, they were like, why didn't you say it the other way, that Arkansas had a stronger foundation in Tennessee? I was like, just go with me here, all right? If one side they knew was strong and one side wasn't, would you go across the bridge? When Jesus became a bridge builder, pressed so anointing could flow, press so we could connect to God. Jesus became every aspect of the bridge. Jesus is the anchor. Jesus is the structure. Jesus is the journey. And now Jesus has formed a bridge 
so that God connects with us and we connect with God. Jesus has formed this way. Jesus has created reconciliation because of his sacrifice, because he was willing to be pressed, where now he's able to meet us in our need, but refuses to leave us there because Jesus wants to move us to a better place. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says it like this. One of my favorite places in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through chapter 6, verse 1 says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sent for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And chapter 6, verse 1 says this, As we work together with him, and some of you versions say as we are co-laborers or as we partner together with God, we urge you also not to accept the grace of God in vain. When it comes to what Jesus did and how Jesus was pressed, it means a few things. One, it means it's an image of love. It's an image of sacrifice. It's an image of mission. It's an image of love that Jesus was willing to do what Jesus did, was willing to go all in to be pressed for love. It was a sacrifice because the price had to be paid. And Jesus was willing to pay the price. And it's a, an image of mission. Because Jesus isn't going to ask his church anything Jesus isn't willing to do. And Jesus is asking his church, when you were pressed, when you're pressed, right, we want to be so connected to God that when we are pressed, an anointing flows from the church that blesses the entire world. I told a story early on in my preaching career. I had a friend who told me this powerful story about reconciliation, so I decided to use it in a sermon. Is at the very end of a sermon before communion, so I was going to use this to connect a sermon to a communion moment. And the story my friend told me was this that he had these friends in his church who were newlyweds, they had a couple of small children, and the husband had a job that kept him on the road quite a bit. And there was one week when the husband was gone working and he was up in the Northeast and there was a meeting that ran late and it ended up in the meeting was just him and a female co-worker. And at the end of the meeting, he and this female co-worker ended up embracing and the embrace lasted a little too long and they ended up kissing and that's where it stopped. And the husband went back to his hotel room that night and was just so full of guilt and shame. He called his wife and just confessed. He confessed all of what happened that night. And his wife said, I need you on a plane tomorrow morning. You need to come home immediately. So he flew back to Dallas, not knowing what to expect when he got there. If his wife had already set up a, you know, a counselor or if his wife wanted out of the marriage. He didn't know what kind of brokenness was there. He didn't know how he would be received. And he got to the airport and his wife was there with the kids. And there was a banner that said, welcome home, daddy. And he got home and they had a meal and they put the children to bed. And after that, his wife led him to a room where she had set up communion. There was bread and there was the cup. And they took communion together. And there was repentance and there was confession and there was prayer. And then she took his hand and led him to the marriage bed. So I shared this story in a sermon. 
And I ended the story basically by saying, if we take the bread and the cup, reconciliation is something that can be so easy. Like things just are put back together. Which I'm sure there's some truth to that in some way. But I got home that day and Casey said, I need to talk to you about that story you shared in the sermon. And she said, first of all, uh, if you ever embrace another female or you kiss someone who is not your mom, like on the cheek, like if you ever do that, communion is going to be the very last thing that's going to be waiting for you. <clears throat> She's like, there's not going to be the body of Christ. There may be a cup of wrath, but it's not going to be the cup of communion. Like, so get that out of your head. And she said, and even more than that, like I will not be taking your hand leading you to, to any room. So let's just get that out of the way. And then she said, Josh, when you talk about reconciliation, don't make it sound so easy. Because you just made it sound so easy this morning in your sermon. Like, hey, we, just, we take the bread, we take the cup, we pray, and things are better. She said, Josh, reconciliation's hard. It's hard. So I want you this morning, I want you to think, when it comes to you being reconciled to God, here, here are three things that reconciliation means. Here they are. Number one, it means this. It means something isn't right. You're not going to reconcile something that, that isn't wrong. You're not going to go to a marriage counselor or just a counselor and ask to be reconciled without being able to talk some about brokenness or something that isn't right. Reconciliation means something isn't right. Number two is this. Reconciliation means there is hope. This is a gift from God. The fact that there is something called reconciliation means there is hope for us. There is hope because of what Jesus has done, because of what God has accomplished through Jesus, there is hope. And third, thirdly, it's this. Reconciliation is hard, and it takes work. Reconciliation means something isn't right. It means there is hope, and it also takes some hard work. Reconciliation doesn't mean that things are going to go back to like they used to be, but that is this gift of God, that if we acknowledge something isn't right, there is hope, and it takes some hard work. Some powerful things can happen. So think about what this means in your relationship to Jesus. It means something isn't right or wasn't right. Sin entered into the world. We are people of sin, and it means that we can't save ourselves. Jesus has done something for us. There is hope, meaning God is on the move, and what God did in and through Jesus, God is still doing for us today, and it's hard work, which means if you care about living into your salvation and being transformed and maturing in Christ, that it's, it's, it's hard work. It's good work. It's necessary. It's what God wants, but it's also, it can be hard work. Now, when it comes to being reconciled to Jesus, we're all moving to where Jesus is. So Jesus is the structure of the bridge. He's the, the anchor of the bridge. He, wherever Jesus is, that's where we want to be. And Jesus is going to meet us in our need, but he's not going to leave us there. He wants to meet us where we are and then move us to wherever it is Jesus is. Now, when it comes to being reconciled to people, whether it's two people being reconciled in a marriage or in a relationship or two groups or multiple groups being reconciled, it doesn't work the same way. Jesus is the only one who can say, when it comes to reconciliation, wherever I am is where you need to be. And too often when it comes to people and groups being reconciled, there will be people who will say, I care about reconciliation as long as you cross the bridge and you come to where I am anchored. 
You can't be a bridge builder if you're not willing to walk over a bridge and to meet people where they are. You can't be a bridge builder if what you say to the world or to another person is, you need to come to where I am because I don't want to change, I don't want to pivot, I don't want to be challenged. To be a bridge builder means you respect every aspect of the bridge, wherever people may be, you meet them there. So in the New Testament, it's not a matter of Jews and Gentiles being transformed into each other's story. It's the message that Jews and Gentiles move together into God. They move together to find where Jesus is. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul goes off on the church there, especially the rich people in the church, because they're taking part in practices that help move them closer to God, but they're not waiting on the poor people to be there with them as they move to God. So the message is, you need to wait for the poor people to be there so the whole family of God is moving to God and toward God together. This is how it works. And whether it's a generational divide, a political divide, an economic divide, a marriage divide, a racial divide, There's reconciliation that needs to happen, and the same three principles exist. Something isn't right. There is hope. Any kind of reconciliation is going to take some hard work. History repeats itself, right? So I'm sure you've heard over the last few months that in the year 1918, there was a flu epidemic that swept the world, and tens of millions of people died. And this was right after or right as World War I was coming to an end. World War I lasted from about 1915 to 1919. So just as the war was ending and soldiers were coming home, racial riots and protests broke out. So you have black soldiers who came home from fighting in World War I. They come home and they're wondering why I just fought for freedom. Yet when I'm back here, there are places where I'm not treated as a free person. So in East St. Louis in the year 1919, there were some white people at a factory who chose to strike. When they chose to strike, the factory hired black people to work. There were black folks who were looking for jobs. There were white people who were upset that black people were hired thinking they're going to take their job. So there was a group of white people who drove into a black community and opened fire. Then there was an unmarked police car who went into the neighborhood because there was, there was stuff happening. And people from the neighborhood shot and killed a police officer. So now people, you can just imagine all the emotions and protests and sides that were being taken. And then over 25 cities ended up having racial protests happening. This was in the year 1919, in a time when there was a pandemic, a pandemic sweeping the world. And here we are about 100 years later, in the middle of a pandemic, with social unrest, racial unrest, political unrest, acknowledging today something isn't right. There is hope, and it's going to take some hard work. Now, in 1919, I'm sure there were churches who did their very best to be voices of hope and voices for good and voices for reconciliation. But there are a lot of churches who chose to either be silent or to not be agents of reconciliation. And here in the year 2020, the church has a chance. The church has an opportunity to be voices for good in a time when the world needs the church to be what Jesus created the church to be. That wherever there's generational divide, economic divide, racial divide, wherever it may be, the church is a force for good. 
The church is meant to be this voice that, hey, we're bridge builders and we're not just yelling at the world to come to us. We're willing to meet people where they are, to care about where they are, where they come from from and what experiences have shaped them. That wherever we are, if you care about reconciliation, reconciliation requires movement by everyone involved. So have strong convictions, but also have a heart that leans in. Believe in something but always be willing to listen. Be passionate, but don't get stuck. We're, we're the church, and since we're the church, it means we move, and we listen, and we care, and we march. And when we are pressed, we do not shrink back. When we are pressed, we move forward. Because Jesus teaches us that pressing happens, and anointing flows. And when the church is pressed, this could be a moment for anointing the flow from the church that blesses the entire world. So I'm going to ask you, if you will, join me in a time of prayer as we sing a couple of songs and come to the table. And if you're here in person, if there's anything we can do for you, if God has moved in songs we have sung or in something I have said that's created something in your heart, a desire for reconciliation, or maybe a prayer, a specific prayer that you need in your life. We have an elder who's outside of this room. You can meet up with them after church for a time of prayer. And if you're online or in person, on our website, there's a connect card, and there are boxes you can check there, and there are prayer requests that you can leave. If you've never confessed Jesus as Lord, and you're in this room, and you're listening right now, and you've never been baptized into Christ, Jesus is inviting you. He's meeting you where you are and inviting you to be reconciled to God in every way. Will you close your eyes and bow your heads? And if you will, just open your hands wherever you are. And let's begin praying just with gratitude that Jesus, through you, reconciliation is possible with God and with people. Just for all you have done, we give you thanks. And today, I ask that the same obedience that you had in the garden and all the way through the cross, the same obedience, the same faithfulness, the same courage that you had to fulfill the will of God, that that will be upon your church, upon us today. And I pray this in the power of the name of Jesus. Amen.